0: Hello and welcome to the December episode of the Solar Media Podcast, where we talk about big energies, solar and storage commitments, emerging technologies, and long duration storage. Of Today, Andy, we are going to talk mm-hmm. about big utilities and their plays into solar and storage.
1: Fire away. <laughs> I believe you've got some stuff lined up, haven't you, right? Yes, yeah, yes, hundred percent. Um talk us,
0: through, so talk us through what's what. I think just gathering over the last couple of months worth of news on um P V Tech, Cyber Power Portal and Energy Storage News, we've obviously seen this big transition towards major, major utilities looking at large scale solar and storage farms. Mm-hmm. Um you look at some of the big players like Orsted that have not just targeted solar and storage in the past but also looking now into new markets they've just gone into Australia in a very big way um, moving on to perhaps one of the biggest stories that we've seen or one of the more impactful stories at least um, coming out of COP25 um, earlier this month is the news that Scottish Power are going on a bit of a re-tinker of their of their strategy and are now almost kind of hedging the house on, on hybrid plants where they obviously have this quite significant portfolio of onshore wind assets around mm-hmm. Scotland, England, um, and a couple of other countries. And now they're looking at embracing other technologies to, to retrofit um, across some of, the, some of those sites. So they're looking at battery storage, they're looking at installing um, solar panels underneath, mm-hmm. um, and connecting all of these things under the same kind of connection point. Um, major, major news. Scottish Power, obviously a Bechler owned, um, quite a big, a big entity for the UK power market, um, and they're kind of well, their chief executive Keith Anson, is is sticking second his head above the parapet and saying that not only are we gonna, not only does this technology work, and not mm. only is it good for good for what we do, but it makes perfect sense for us kind of economically as well, which is obviously a really, really good message to send out for for UK renewables. Okay um, and so,
1: so the Scottish Power that's one of the traditional big six energy yes. suppliers of the UK? Yeah. Right so I mean how does that I mean not to go straight off Scottish Power now but like how does that sort of scale in terms of what we've seen so far I mean it, it sounds to me like that makes them something of a front runner I guess.
0: 100% mm. um, they're Um, probably one of the um leading early contenders from the big six to kind of embrace large-scale renewables. Um, They've kind of separated their own Mm. uh, business unit for this. They obviously spun off a load of, well, their their last remaining fossil fuel assets earlier this year, Um, and have since invested, set out to invest billions of pounds in this. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a major, major commitment. Um, They clearly want to lead from the front. Um, And to be perfectly honest, it's something that has been called out for, which I think is why, they took to this, mm. the the stage at COP uh, twenty five in Madrid to make that announcement. It was right. quite it was kind of pitch a perfect audience for them um, okay. to for them to kind of stand up and and take that lead role.
1: A global stage really, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I mean it kind of feels a little bit like a milestone in that it's the unveiling of a you know big tranche of generation and storage projects. And from what I've seen, a lot of the investments, you know, while there has been significant investment in a lot of clean power stuff from these bigger, sort of more incumbent players. It tends to have been more sort of technology investments and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's been a few, but I could not off the top of my head, tell you know, think of a strategy that is this this ambitious by any means. Right, really, it's, it's tended to be more investing aggregation platforms and sort of you know preparatory kind of work. Yeah
0: obviously. well uh, look, if, if you look at some of the major investments that come from the likes of BP, Shell, those kind of massive oil oil and gas energy stores, um, mm. historically BP have obviously looked at solar and didn't quite make it work, same with, same with Shell perhaps. Um, now they've kind of about faced and looking more at the the deployment side of the things so mm. They have, mm. and they obviously have, um, BP has amassed a master portfolio of investments in the likes of um, EV charging and Firm Chargemaster. Mm-hmm. Um, they got um, aggregate the London-based aggregator line jump as well.
1: Oh yeah, that was a big one, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it was. yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, earlier this month though, they did actually increase their stake in BP, in, um, in, in LightSource, right, sorry, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, taking yeah. it from the 43% to the 50%. Now this is... An interesting move it kind of settles um well it, it sparks a lot of interest into what they might do next but that's mm-hmm. going to that's going to just that stake is going to keep on increasing um we actually had a um, very brief chat with um some of the light source management after that happened and and they're kind of of the of the of the attitude it, it's very much it was it made sense for them um but interestingly they weren't they weren't there to to talk numbers they weren't they had no interest in that, but they just wanted mm. to put out the message that it's very much a sensible move for them to share the, the, the standing in, in what has become this mm. almost giant soda firm in the last two years since, since they first acquired, since BP first acquired the interest. Mm. So you have this kind of big, well, light source were obviously um, for, for those of a UK, persuasion sort of were pretty much the, the, Shining light of the UK side of the market, um, and now BP have taken them into. Um, I think it's something like thirteen different markets. Um, okay. They they have this massive massive portfolio of um, more than twelve gigawatts um, spread over the US, Europe, some in Australia, I think some was in the Americas. A step before I even looked it up. <laughs> well yeah, okay. um, one of the big things that came out of that chat mm-hmm. was that the majority, if not all, of that pipeline, mm. they are looking to bring forward with bifacial
1: panels right okay well well, let's go on to that aspect of it in a minute because there's a lot to talk about in just in terms of the technology there but yeah i mean i guess for again for briefly for our international readers um light source has actually become well known in the mainstream i guess in the uk because that partnership has seen their services and basically the partnership advertised broadly cinemas even bus stops like billboards that kind of thing now Obviously, there is the spectre of greenwashing is always a potential with anything involving you know, the energy transition and the old incumbents. Now, that's, sure. that's a given, I think, to some extent. So, I think what we really need to see now is kind of more of like what, you, what you call a green pivot as opposed mm-hmm. to a green wash. Um, and yeah, I mean, like you say, because what's funny, I was thinking about this on the way here, but you know, you and I, are, we're not that young to be honest with you, but we slightly missed the age of solar, you know, seven or eight years ago when BP was actually making a play of it. Sure. And if you look at Shell as well, what I found fascinating first getting into solar was that the OPEC oil shock, oil price shock of the early 1970s mm. was what led Shell to set up Solar Frontier which is its thin film subsidiary in Japan and it's done some business in America. Now, the thing is that Solar Frontier makes apparently a very good kit, um, but it clearly, First Solar is the only name people rethink really of yeah. when it comes to mainstream thin film. So in both those cases, I think both BP and Shell, from, from my sort of, you know, after the fact knowledge, may seem to put a pretty good go of it in and then obviously various other reasons meant that it's only now that they're kind of, coming back to it i guess i
0: think it's, it's a really interesting kind of discussion point from from the particularly from the perspective of shell and bp because what you have to kind of always bear in mind is that they do they are a law unto their shareholders mm. so they have to do the what's what they perceive to be best for them now you could argue all day that this is a a huge climate crisis which we're facing and that there is an an enormous economic opportunity to to lead from the front with mm-hmm. that. Um, I don't think that will. I don't think that message will resonate with an awful lot of people who ultimately own shares in BP and Shell. So what they're almost having this this debate over is they can't push too too hard too fast mm-hmm. because if they were, for instance, seen by their by the market in general to be ditching or leaving the and gas markets entirely in favor of renewables where well, those aren't quite as profitable so mm-hmm. you then have this big situ- or this situation where they are pivoting away from everything and that can lead to turmoil in the share price which leads to investment opportunities kind of running by the wayside. Yes. It's, it's, it's a bit of a balancing situation mm-hmm. now that is rapidly coming to the fore now where it's going to get to a point where one of those two for one or the better expression it's going to have to piss or get off the pot okay um, they're going to have to start making some really sizable um, investments into into low carbon energy um, and I think with what you're seeing with BP taking on light source BP charge master and a couple of others under the alternative energies division mm. shells play with um, uh, Silicon Ranch in the US. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, clean yeah. Tech Soda in Asia. They'd
1: made so many acquisitions, I wasn't sure which one. <laughs> went out first there, I yeah. think it's something to say, yeah. you have
0: BP Alternative Energies and then Shell New Energies. Sure. These two massive competing mm-hmm. alter, well, alternative new energy divisions that seem to be in a race for space, basically.
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. you know, yeah. And sorry, to just uh, from, from the other perspective as well, you've also got NLX... Mm-hmm. has just switched on a pretty large project in new york city uh batteries that is sorry yeah. um and angie sorry um their purchase of green charge which is a u.s commercial energy storage provider has seems to have certainly in terms of marketing spend and in terms of where we see them at shows and things like that they obviously put a hell of a lot into it but then clearly they've actually also done a a lot of projects recently as well. Sure. What's interesting about those is that they're kind of yeah. I mean they're spun out kind of subdivisions of the company that is nonetheless doing sort of project work. So I actually have to admit that the NLX one didn't occur to me that we'll be coming onto this. So I'm quite looked into the ownership structure, but that's kind of spun out of an L and is yeah exactly. It's fairly it's, well separated.
0: It's, it's, you know. it's a spin out of an L, but also yeah. um, earlier this month an L came out and said that their previous investment strategy for renewables and low carbon solutions wasn't ambitious enough. So they've gone okay. back and re- re-looked at that and sort of plough a bit more, a bit more money in. Um, I mean, it's a very, very similar state of affairs to what um, Iberdrola announced um, during their last set of results, that their Q3s where um, their, their chairman, Ignacio um came out and said, we are increasing our renewables investment because the last record-breaking mm. renewables investment was so beneficial to us that it has created what he termed a virtuous circle of growth. So the more they invest into renewables, the more their profit increases, which allows them to invest more in renewables, which then would seemingly drive their profit even further. So this, it's almost like you can't put enough into renewables at the
1: moment. Right, yeah. And I mean, the other thing was that there was a big story this week about BlackRock, uh, you know, training investment. Machine as it is, actually, quite literally, in, in some ways. Sure. Um, yeah, so it's got it's amassed a billion dollars to go trading in, sorry, trade investing rather, uh, wind, solar, etc., which is great, big milestone, yada, yada yada it's very nice. That said, you know, it led to me trawling through some sort of news from the past couple of years. And I think I pointed out to you at the time that uh, only two years ago it was widely reported by the mainstream that, in fact, BlackRock had lost something around nine billion dollars per year for the last 10 years through investing in fossil fuel assets so you know there's an element to some extent although it's a small de-risking there's an element that some of this investment could be a de-risking against yeah some of their existing business you know so it's it might be smarter than you think to actually put out a little wedge Hmm. at the very least there albeit we'd like to see that Grow essentially if it's going to happen uh, in yeah, this right way. Right? I think you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. So that kind of led to us also having a quick look at some of the big projects that PV Tech's been reporting on actually over the last week or two, right?
0: Yeah. The, I mean, there's been there's been some real some real big names, some some big numbers being thrown about. Um, we reported uh, just to go back to Lightsource very really briefly. We reported on um, a 200 megawatt. Um, solar project, which they've just closed financing on. Um, I think in New South oh, this Wales, is Australia, one, right? Yeah, yeah, down, yeah, yeah, down in Australia, New South Wales. That's actually again going to be built using bifacial panels. Uh-huh. So this is something which obviously the, the solar industry has been looking to bring to the fore for the last couple of years. Um, there's a lot of issues with um, not having absolutely cast iron certainty that the tenant that the technology works, mm-hmm. or where there isn't enough kind of moving at the moment is the the data to back up bankability so that right. there's not enough okay. publicly accessible data which proves the the, the level of gain from the back side of the panel um, mm-hmm. again speaking to LightSource they've been testing this technology for something like two years now and they have two years worth of internal data looking at Um, what what, what the efficiency gains are and and how bifacial panels really drive that extra performance. Now they've got that to fall back on, but obviously the rest of the industry doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, I spoke to um, a UK developer called GridServe who will be known to some of our audience, I would imagine. They're just about to energise one of their um, maiden UK projects using bifacial panels. Now those are really interesting because they combine bifacial panels with trackers Mm. and energy storage to produce this. Kind of really technologically advanced mm-hmm. um, panels, yeah. um, And they had they had the same issue when when they were speaking to um, potential partners for their projects or, or finances. They they were had one of the big things that they encountered was that their their issue was they weren't that they had no evidence to fall back on. They mm-hmm. couldn't turn around to these finances and say yes, we expect X percent extra from the panels because of this project they are now they are essentially themselves the case study
1: right okay okay so i mean it just sounds like it's a matter of time then isn't it exactly. because it does work yeah and i think like we were saying before it might be a question that uh, i mean i know people need to be more precise than this in real life but it might be a question that essentially you're just going to guarantee a slightly lower yeah yield than you might hope for basically you yeah know? Um, and then you could have storage solutions to clip any of the surplus that's there and at sure. least you can use that, that energy for later. So yeah, yeah and I mean, just to fi- finally on that big projects note, actually, we were going to run through some of the ones from the side, but there's just too many to go through, isn't it?
0: I, it, it's, you know, the, I think the last couple of, of weeks have just been project after project after project with pipelines yeah. massing. I think some of the activity we're seeing in Spain and Portugal in particular is just... Yeah, remarkable that they are some enormous pipelines coming through, um, well, across southern Europe, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, Italy's there's a 440 megawatt solar complex that we've written about, and uh, Sicily 2.7 gigawatts of floating PV in Korea. Um, it's pretty incredible. So, yeah, by all means, check the um, in Italy, as you say, it comes up time and again, doesn't it? Yeah. You know? Um, so, yeah, as, as you say, check the PVTech website and keep up to date with all of this on folks. And and obviously the thing is that with all of that renewable energy, and this might be controversial still to some people, but, you know, that's going to need more storage of energy. Which brings us subtly on our next subtly, point, Andy. How good is that? Well, I'm <laughs> still actually trying to stick with the loose theme of the big players because yeah. just, just finally um, one of our writers, uh, Molly Lomprier, um, Actually wrote that uh, Drax the uh, how do you describe them energy giant I suppose energy giant um, slash um, I was gonna say gas giant but that's a type of planet isn't it like, <laughs> like, <laughs> something, something like that yeah so they are
0: they are the the Jupiter of biomass in the UK I'd they are um, yeah so they obviously have a couple of um, significant. Um, assets, uh, yeah. generation assets in the UK um, own some coal, some biomass that they look at, and the coal stuff that they own, they're trying to retrofit to biomass. So you. Right. Got a lot okay. Of, um, right, yeah. right, right. But they are looking to become carbon neutral by twenty thirty. Right, and what so right. they
1: produced this uh, report. Oh, they didn't produce a report. Sorry, they commissioned a report via hmm. Imperial College um, here in here in the UK. Um, that for Britain's net zero targets by 2050, we'll need at least 30 gigawatts of energy storage. Yeah, so that's something like a tenfold increase. It's big, yeah, it really is, it really is. Um, And you know, as efforts to decarbonize power continue, we're likely to get 70 to 80% of power from wind and solar by 2050. Um, And that's gonna require a lot more storage. So these big players, um, although obviously now the investment is a lot in generation and a lot of the smart tech side um, within the sort of within the meter, if you will, uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, interest in energy storage from there as well, I guess. And like Shell buying Sonnen, mm. obviously, bears witness to that. Um, albeit that's a residential company sure. with ambitions to go into the grid kind of thing. So yeah, so that's, it's been um, a huge, are we moving on to part two? This is moving on on to part two, indeed. The energy storage side of things, right. Okay. So it's been a um, couple of big announcements this week on battery manufacturing stuff. So I'm just going to bear quick mention of that because actually our writer Jose Martin is writing that one for the site as we speak. So I don't have the Some information. information. live. Like? Yeah, right. Yeah, although you guys won't be listening to this live, so I guess it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> but yeah, so the the European Commission today um, has approved more than three billion um, euros, uh, which is about seven billion pounds. Now I can't say that can I? That is well. I mean, that's we are tea, two but, yeah. day,
0: two days away from an election result, two, which, yeah. which
1: could possibly do that. Which could change everything, I suppose. Yeah. Not least of all, well, renationalising <laughs> um, the energy energy market, right? Uh, which the you know the Labour candidate in the UK is talking about. Anyway, so the yeah, so the e, uh, European Commission has okayed some three billion to go to uh, various groups looking to develop battery factories sure. in the UK, uh, not the UK, in, inside Europe, in Europe, <laughs> same thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that's going to be a big one and um, yeah you might have seen one of our best performing stories this month was in fact a partnership between uh, Volkswagen and Northvolt. Yes. So Northvolt is a how to describe it it's a startup. It's a guy who was one of the top Tesla guys a few years ago. Not Elon. No there are other people there. <laughs> believe it or not we're not allowed to quote their names generally but yeah <laughs> <laughs> there are other people there um, and uh, <laughs> so you yeah, where am I going with that so essentially he basically wanted to see battery manufacturing in Europe uh, he wanted to see them closer to the demand centers that will hopefully exist sure um, and at first it seemed like there's a very much electric vehicle focused um, however they are also going to make batteries for ESS as well okay and they're actually going to make their own ESS systems including EV smart chargers. now they are planning to go for 35 gigawatt hours from their factory in Sweden. Sure. So they have an R&D in the south yeah. and they have a factory in the north. Um, and 35 gigawatt hours, that's basically what Gigafactory in Nevada is right. aimed at. Um, so that's big. And at the time that was announced, Gigafactory 1, that 35 gigawatt hours produced annually would have been equal to, I think, the sum total of lithium batteries already in existence to that right. point. So, you know, all, all the, i uh, just going to take a moment here to uh, say hello to all the internet trolls and climate <laughs> deniers that enjoy taking us on. But if you look at, I mean, yes, okay, so renewable energy, it's been incremental for a long time, but you get to scale and you get manufacturing at scale and it's, Changes. Could, could be limitless, yeah. 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 There's a lot of dynamics going in that one, because obviously the EU announcement, the European Commission announcement, there's a little bit of a competition needle towards Asia as well. So Asia yeah. traditionally being the the, you know, the hub of battery manufacturing, and um, in fact Northvolt recruited most of its engineering and development team from Asia, right. having found a bit of a skills gap in that area, quite understandably, within Europe so to some extent at first when when the eu kind of started announcing its plans to do this battery manufacturing there were a lot of voices within the industry going does it need that and realistically can it compete with china anyway hmm. so to finish on a journalistic cliche there time will tell <laughs> we're, we're really we're really not sure really not sure but yeah i'm getting an interview um down with norfolk over the next few days and uh, hopefully want to hear a lot more in detail about that
0: how how does how does Norfolk's ambitions compare to um, the well since since the last episode of the of the podcast the right. Giga Berlin
1: oh right okay well I guess it's a, gonna be roughly the same as Giga Berlin oh yeah no sorry but Northvolt also announced their second factory too there you go which is also going to be in Germany well that that, that Seems interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure the size of that second one. Right, but it's going to be in the yeah tens tens of gigawatt hours, presumably. So yeah, so essentially, all, the, all systems go. I think Germany's going to have to be supplying batteries to and Sweden. We have to supply the batteries for all of Europe. And right. from I I guess moving on from that because yeah, one of the things that we're off
0: that we often get hit with by those aforementioned internet trolls and climate deniers is yeah. that a lot of this technology, mm. um, especially when we, it comes to or when you factor in the app, the actual extraction of the lithium in the mm. first place, mm. when it, this is something that is often levied at um, electric vehicles, Yeah, they are just as polluting as their petrol and diesel counterparts once the entire supply chain. Now that's obviously not, not true. true. Right, um, and it is a myth peddled by climate deniers. But yeah. Wh- wh- yeah. what what kind of elements of, of sustainability? No, I mean, I think
1: it? that I mean, generally, genuinely, there are legitimate concerns on that. Like, it's to say, let's you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Like, sure, there is there is definitely an element of concern. So we talked before about the need to reduce the use of cobalt or find better ways of getting the cobalt. Sure, you know. Um, that's i mean i 'm not going to say it 's a given because it needs to be dealt with you know um, but on the other side of things so yeah so so in in that respect, I think that there are questions that need to be answered, uh, and I think it 's like any new industry it 's the difference between responsible manufacturers and irresponsible manufacturers you know, right. if, if companies have no regulation i 'm not going to say incentive if companies aren 't punished for not doing the right thing, then they 're not unfortunately they 're not going to do the right thing you know? yeah. Um, So, yes, I mean, it is incumbent on all of us to encourage much, much stronger vigilance over that. That said, um, North Vault, and again, it's now down to them, the ball's in their court to give us more detail on this, but they really saw their reason for establishing their production facilities as being what they saw as a lack of sustainability in the, uh, mainly the Asia battery. I know you're oh, dying I can't I mean to say, <laughs> <laughs> name, name other names within, uh, you know, closer to home perhaps. But yeah, no, in all, in all seriousness, that is apparently part of why they do what they do. So that's really important. And I'd also really like to draw attention again to, um, and I think we discussed this in brief. So hans Eric Mellon who's a consultant with circular energy storage. Yes. Yeah. He's been, he's been, he's one of the, not one of the good trolls, but he's quite <laughs> prolific. He's been, basically he's been prolific on, on social media and stuff, talking people through how, so he's been researching how the industry actually does recycle. Yeah. And how it should and can recycle. And he's found that in fact, is a big chance that companies are going to be fighting over the recyclable volumes of material. Sure. That come out, you know, um, So that in itself is pretty, pretty good, isn't it? Because I mean, none of us, I think I've written this as a headline before, we all need to see batteries as renewable as well. You know, it needs to come in at low cost. Yeah. And the other thing is like the speculation over materials and things like that, they need to be abundant materials because if people see an opportunity to speculate in them, then that's going to skew the whole renewable energy kind of movement, you know? um but uh, yeah and and in terms of lithium extraction as a site we've generally stuck with the downstream side of things because you know we've just been like a proof of life that the that the industry existed from 2014 and and now we're reporting on things that really happen yeah so i think that supply chain side of things is going to have to go into a lot more detail in future um albeit like i say as with anything there's going to be responsible and less responsible suppliers um Mining of lithium is a big one. Um, it was Latin America. Um, I think forty, according to Bloomberg figures, forty nine percent of the world's lithium was uh, taken from South America. Sure. In two thousand and fifteen alone, um, not sure what the proportion is now. It Might even have gone up as the the demand scaled up. But you know.
0: Well, there so was that. There was. I mean, obviously, it wasn't a pivotal factor in in the political mm-hmm. upheaval, but it was certainly some elements of something wasn't quite right in, in that um contract which um the Bolivian government wanted to sign right okay with, with, the, with the extraction of lithium which kind of got swept and, and and reported on and then a couple of days later there was the the far more significant news of the polit- kind of political uncertainty there so that kind of got got kind of put
1: aside for a while mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah sure well, and um yeah reports in this week that um portugal's signed some lithium deals sure and um yes yeah, there's, there's a basically again a lot going on there so that is that is something and, you know another thing i've been looking into is apparently the um the actual extraction of lithium is in itself becoming less and less energy intensive sure so i mean did you read this one the other day that was in fact you might have to edit this statistic out but it's something like the amount of water that's used for making a kilowatt hour of lithium battery is the same as 250 grams of beef. It's about it, roughly it, it, the same. Yeah. yeah, something like that. So again, I mean, it just, it just feels like there's always people falling over themselves to try and do a lot of these things down. Yeah. And my question to you, to not to you, Liam, but to them would be Thanks. why they enjoy air pollution so much. You know? Yeah. I personally don't because I've lived in a city my entire life. I fell off of um, Yeah. Excellent. Time for a quick break. Time for a quick break.
0: Here at Soda Media, we don't just provide industry-leading news. We're also quite accustomed to throwing the odd event. February and March 2020 sees the return of our famous Spring Portfolio, featuring Soda Finance and Investment London, the Energy Storage Summit series, and more. Even better, listeners to the podcast can receive exclusive discounts to attend. Simply email marketing at sodamedia.co.uk with the word podcast in the subject to receive your discounted rate. For more information on the event series, head to www.SolarEnergyEvents.com. And welcome back to the Soda Media Podcast and staying on the topic of energy storage. Andy, yeah. I believe we've got something in PV Tech Power this month about long duration storage. We do, yeah.
1: Well, staying on the topic of batteries, but are we really staying on the topic of batteries? Ooh. Oh. What could you possibly mean by What I could I possibly say? So flow batteries. Uh, redox slow batteries. Um which some would describe as not actually batteries, but in fact machines. Right. Store energy. How is that any different to a battery, Andy? Do you know what? It's a distinction I'm not interested in talking <laughs> about. Either. So let's just use the let's just <laughs> use the normal nomenclature. No. So what it is is that essentially Um, It's been argued that a lithium-ion battery is a commodity that wears out within a fairly limited period of time. Flow batteries are more expensive, capex wise, right? um, but they offer the opportunity to decouple energy and power, which means you can provide some of the high power applications that lithium batteries can do. But it means that the bigger the flow battery gets in terms of the energy it stores and the longer it stores it for, the price doesn't go up by a factor of whatever every time it goes up. Sure. Linear. I think that's the right way of describing it. So essentially, so flow batteries have been talked about with promise for decades in fact. They yeah. were actually, actually invented or developed by NASA. Uh, more than 40 years ago. Um, they were dropped from there, but you know, as with the, uh, the Dust Buster, I later found out, and various <laughs> other technologies, uh, NASA spun it out. Sure. So Dust Buster comes from NASA, and if you guys take nothing away from this podcast, let it be that way. Right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, um, the flow battery was, yeah, it was more or less dropped, um, but then it's been picked up and put down again, picked up, and... There's a lot of uh, different startups have come and gone and some of them are still kind of fighting on. So, a new report just out from Navigant Research identifies 12 leading vendors in the field, but, crucially, only a couple of those are actually identified as leaders and the rest are still contenders. The point being, no one's really gone beyond a handful of deployments of megawatts yet. Yeah, certainly. Right. So there's a lot of um, bankability that needs to be established for the technology. Um, it's just basically it seems that investors and stuff need to get more comfortable with it, and the point is that um, an asset that can pay itself back uh, over twenty or thirty years, uh, a lot of potential investors don't necessarily think in those timeframes. No, that's kind of the part part of the problem there. So. Uh, This is a bit of an opportunity to plug the forthcoming edition of PV Tech Power. That's our quarterly journal through Solar Media. Sent to press uh, yesterday. You're right. So it should be online, what, this beginning of next week?
0: Uh, week? It will be published online. uh,
1: We commence on the 16th. Terrific. So from the 16th of December, you can read a terrific, uh, I think it's six or seven pages, uh, technical paper. Uh, uh, CENELEST, C-E-N-E-L-E-S-T, and that is a research alliance established between the University of New South Wales Engineering Department and Germany's Fraunhofer Institute for Chemical Technology. Uh, Now, it's it's a really detailed paper. Um, There's a short uh, preview of that on the energy storage news sites today Fantastic. yeah yeah. so and i mean it's just basically just explains that separation between the uh, energy conversion and, and storage uh, that just offers a lot of potential um, but as we heard before um building scale and manufacturing scale in particular uh, and obviously the sales networks and things like that is going to be really vital. So sure. over the last few months, we've seen some providers do things like um, put out uh, t- deals with telecoms companies, Interesting. So yeah. telecoms towers, particularly in harsh, hotter environments and stuff. Yeah. So flow batteries aren't as sensitive to the heat. Mm. Um, they can operate on heavy duty cycling um, for basically for, for many years um, in I was gonna say in theory I and mean, it's kind of proven but they have yeah. existed long enough to you know, so on. So that's really interesting and actually also our biggest performing story of the last couple of weeks was forthcoming launch by Lockheed Martin. Yes, yeah, it's you've like,
0: been plugging away at this for for some time. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. so I mean it's it's been a long time, it's fair to say it's been a long time in the development. Yeah. I mean we ran almost the same story this time last year, <laughs> saying that the uh, the better and that's not to do do the company down. Um, because well, well I'm scared of you wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> uh, but in all honesty, you know, look at how long it's taken other people to to get that into the market on a commercial basis. And Lockheed Martin, I think, as soon as something becomes clear that it's there's an energy security angle to it, uh, you'll find that it's probably not that hard, or or even national security or defence angle, it suddenly becomes very easy to find money. Sure. So, uh, and so yeah, so Lockheed Martin, despite having not launched their flow battery, in fact, have ended up in the not the quite the top of the leaderboard, but they are in among the leading categories. So I think there's a lot to come from there. Yeah. And uh, it's a fascinating space because you've got everything from startups um, like Primus Power, which has their equipment manufactured through OEM deals, in their case with Foxconn, which okay. is Taiwanese assembly yeah. of, the, of the Apple products. And then you've got VRB Energy, which is part owned by a Canadian company, but also has some Vanadium mining interest in China so that's sure. a f- massive level of vertical integration yeah um, then we got you know we reported on recently Avalon Battery with the UK's Red Tea looking to yeah. form a global partnership um, so it's a pretty exciting space to be honest and, and one to watch closely so that features heavily in in the forthcoming PVTIC power um, so as I say that article from the teams at uh, University of South Wales and Fraunhofer Takes a very deep dive, both from technology then to commodities and supply chain. Right. It really is. It's definitely one to cut out and keep. I think. Um, and then you know, as a bit of a complementary piece to that, uh, myself and fellow solar media scribe Alice Grundy, have penned a sort of profile piece. Um, some would say listicle, but I hate <laughs> that word, so I'm not going to use it. Um, but it's essentially it is about 10, I'm going to say about 10, because some of them are sort of split between providers and technologies, yeah. long duration technologies thought to be a promise and, and where those are. So again, that's a that's a pretty interesting one. And and I'm fascinated to look in, in more detail at, at pretty much all of those and see what works and, and what doesn't. And I think some more than one is probably going to work, but it'll be a question of what works for what application. Sure. So sure. everything from pumped hydro, To this mad fairground ride with gigantic concrete weights, things that that, that, um, energy fault from Switzerland doing hot steel uh, from Lumenia. I thought that was your band name. That's the name of my new band. (laughs) And also, yeah. (laughs) So yeah, and then and then different types of batteries like zinc. Sure. Zinc batteries are apparently not zinc flow batteries either, which is another subcategory. All going on. It's fascinating stuff, actually. Yeah, yeah. So so we'll. yeah, really look forward to launching that. So get your get your subscription in, and so it's completely free of charge. Uh, we do take some details from you, but um, yeah, we need them to get the magazine to you. We need them to get the magazine. <laughs> not at all. The Simply time. put, but yeah, and so yeah, so just just briefly before we move on, uh, if we can just round off a couple more stories from the site this week. Are you gonna? Is this a listicle? If you like, <laughs> go for if it. You a, like. An audio listicle of Sip, what's on an article de list. Uh, so yeah, so as I mentioned earlier on, um, N L X has just created conne- uh, connected a grid scale battery storage project in Brooklyn, New York. Excellent. Sorry, anyone in New York listening there. Um, yeah, sixteen point four megawatt hours in densely packed urban New York environment.
0: I look forward to reading more about that. And yeah, how it operates. Yeah, yeah,
1: sure, <laughs> sure. But I mean, you know what's really interesting about that one, actually, um, from an energy transition angle, is that that is part of the Brooklyn Queens um, demand reduction program. Okay, or demand sure. management program is called. Yeah. So this is basically like a cluster of related technologies and yeah. aggregated. It includes a virtual power plant from the aforementioned Angie storage. Right. Formerly Green Charge Networks. Excellent. Thirteen megawatt hours of connected commercial systems. I think it is mostly, um, and to that has been added um, on a commercial site as well, sixteen point four megawatt hours of um, uh, of this new battery um, and. It's also got microgrids as well. Well, so apartment, like whole apartment microgrids and things like that.
0: There's some really fascinating projects in New York. You also have yeah. the, the LO3 Brooklyn peer to peer energy trading right, scheme, which okay. has been really, really successful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, New York seems to be a destination for, despite mm. it not perhaps appearing or having some of the uh, characteristics of mm. of that kind of that kind of development. It seems to be a home to.
1: Quite yeah. a number I mean, from a storage point of view, it was very much about the. Um, they have the strictest permitting laws. Right. Because I mean, they had the world's first electrical grid, right? I'm yeah. Not much mistaken. Which still runs on it. Um, Well, it's deadly, (laughs) Um, but the thing is that, yeah, so um, it means that New York's got the most, I've probably said this on the pod before, most stringent fire codes of any urban environment in the world and most stringently enforced. Sure. Rightly so, I think, Um, but it's meant that obviously it's taken more time for energy storage to get off the ground. So a number of providers we've spoken to actually worked with the fire department in, in New York, uh to actually get that that clear but the the point being from a bigger picture from a policy angle is that the state wants to be 100 renewable electricity by 2040 and it's got an energy storage target of three gigawatts by 2030 um, and you know these projects are getting bigger and longer in duration so this 16.4 megawatt hour one just done is 4.8 megawatt hours um so yeah so that that means it is going to be playing a pretty big role in this whole uh, Queen Brooklyn, Queens, Neighbourhood Programme. Sure. Um, which, yeah, basically combines demand response, energy efficiency, related technologies, and so on. So, yeah, so I get the impression we're running kind of low on time in order to go through everything else that I want <laughs> to go through because I <laughs> want to go through everything. Um, but yeah, so just, just a very, very brief headlines then before, if I may. Um, so yeah, we just had a V to G charger. Vehicle to grid that is, going to service at the Amsterdam Arena. The um,
0: Johan Cruyff Arena.
1: It would be named after the legendary footballer himself, um, Johan Cruyff. And that's exciting because it's Nissan being the first car maker to validate their warranties for discharging batteries to the grid. As well as absorbing for the group. It's an interesting stadium yeah. in terms
0: of uh, energy because they were also one of the first um, sports stadiums in Europe to receive a industrial battery storage. Indeed, three megawatts. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So yeah, we've got quite a lot of in depth content on that from a year or two ago on the actual project itself. So look that up. I think um, the Emirates also has one. I believe it does. Home of Arsenal Football Club by Good. some measures, the greatest team the world has ever seen. Did, did someone beat West Ham last night? Arguably. <laughs> we did alright, we did alright. Okay, first, first win in ten? Yeah, let's, let's not <laughs> talk about football, we're not doing well, Liam. There so, are other
0: football podcasts. Well, I
1: know, you know where else they like football? Go Germany. On. Right. So, top performing story and final one for today from me, uh, some of you will be glad to hear, is that a town in Germany, home. Um, again, apologies for pronunciation, anyone there that I've got it wrong for, uh, went 100% renewable. For how long? For an hour. Okay. It's a caveat there. Yeah. But the town, so it's a town of 7,500 odd people. Sure. They're not odd people. 7,500 people, sorry. Yeah. And they are going 100% renewable next year. So in order to do that, this trial run took place where a battery energy storage system deployed by uh, Res Group, so that's Renewable Energy Systems, which is a UK company. Yeah. It's a nice a nice uh, UK story there as well. Uh, using SMA solar inverters and uh, Sunny Central Storage battery inverter, hybrid controller. Um, so that's the equipment side of things. Yeah, essentially the um, local energy supplier, VBB. Go over again. Uh, no, I'm not going to try and read it. Sorry, uh, basically <laughs> programmed on the project, which is European Union supported in June two thousand and eighteen. So you've got a ten megawatt peak power output, fifteen megawatt hour storage capacity battery using uh, lithium NMC batteries, um, and Bordersholm is so seven thousand to five hundred to eight thousand inhabitants. Um, And it's about 75% renewable, but during next year it needs to reach 2020, uh, sorry, (laughs) during 2020 it needs to reach 100% renewables. Right. So the battery itself wasn't deployed just to do that because, you know, the business case for a battery is fairly complex as as, we've established, right? So the battery provides frequency containment reserves to the local network of the grid operator, which is called Tenet. And um, they also operate in, in Holland and in Netherlands as well and, yeah. and, and so on, yeah. So, so it helps integrate renewable energies and helps stabilise the power supply on a day-to-day basis. But it has also been designed with this independent local grid kind of islanding capability. So that in case of power outages, emergencies in the present time and in the future going fully renewable, it can all, all be done. So there's a, that, huge,
0: a huge kind of case study for what is possible with the right lens of it.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I mean I think it's easy to say on one hand that as a small town it's quite a self-contained sort of area. Yeah. On the other hand, um, it shows what you can do. and. Just as a final note on that, you look at California last few weeks, you've got huge power shutoffs, yeah. you've got wildfire, or you had wildfires happening, same thing in terms of fires happening in Australia. Australia at the moment. Microgrids, people are looking at building a lot of microgrids that are actually grid connected and mm-hmm. kind of semi-urban environment microgrids. So there's a lot of, you know, it just goes to show there's a lot of layers, a lot of layers and applications. Yeah. And, uh, and that's uh, yeah. yeah. Thanks for listening. In <laughs> that respect, so yeah, <laughs> I think um, one of the biggest news stories that obviously we're
0: seeing in our in our UK home market yep. is what is going to be what well, what is happening from a political standpoint with with the general election. Obviously, the UK returns to the polls for the third time in. I lost count. Third, yeah, yeah, yeah. In two um, years, yeah. <laughs> um, as we we record this on a Tuesday to go out on a Wednesday, the election is on a Thursday. Um, at the moment, it does seem as if it will be a conservative majority government, but it's. I think this is. It was very interesting from a from a kind of climate energy journalist perspective to see, mm. or what was hoped to be the, this big climate election. But then we've had too, it, too just, much is overlooked. Just it, far, far too much. Far yeah. too much else is going on. Obviously, with Brexit, mm-hmm. and we've had um, a lot of other issues relating to both parties. I think it's fair to say, or both of the main parties, rather. Mm-hmm. And the the actual promise or the premise of of the climate emergency has kind of been lost by the wayside. In the first televised election debate, it was sidetracked almost entirely to a to a, a minor quick fire question round towards the end of the mm-hmm. um end of the broadcast and then obviously channel four um did broadcast this televised um climate debate which with, with the help of of um of a, a fantastic charity um in in, in the mm-hmm. u k mm-hmm. um and two of them didn't even bother turning up so this
1: was essentially i mean it did Bring us a very novel empty chair solution, right? Yeah. So Farage of the Brexit party, Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit party, Boris Johnson, leader of the ruling Conservative party, were both no-shows.
0: Yeah, and and Channel 4 responded to them by
1: not just simply
0: empty chairing them, but by placing two ice sculptures to represent them, Mm -hmm. which subtly melted throughout the broadcast. I
1: heard that the Conservative one melted faster than the Brexit one.
0: That's true. Why? I wonder why. Um, I think there was maybe a lot of hot, White. a lot of a lot of hot air coming from that <laughs> side of the room. I don't know. Well, I mean, in the, in the interest of balance, uh, I
1: think we have yeah. to say all of the candidates were are talking. <laughs> no, I mean
0: that's not true. There but are but other political parties available.
1: But I mean, um, it, it was. I mean, it's interesting that I believe this is the first time we've had a climate debate. Um, I think mainstream so. Mainstream one. I think is a, a, I a
0: proper there, yeah. there have been obviously other fringe events around the election which have been organised and people have spoken at and, and been represented at mm. um, but this is the first time that a hour debate televised debate on a, on a state-backed channel like mm. channel 4 has ever been broadcast so mm. that in in a snapshot is obviously a good thing to mm. have happened during this election but for what was perhaps billed as the climate election before people the, the campaigns actually, actually got started for mm. it to happen or for it to for, for the issue of the climate emergency to have been sidetracked as it has it has not been good to see um, the contempt at which yeah. climate and energy issues have been shown in some of the party manifestos has also been really disappointing, um, and all eyes will now be on what happens afterwards because obviously the UK does have the mere, the, the no mean feat of hosting next year's co-op one of the most what? the the most pivotal. Um, climate change uh, conference to date and there's not much in the Tory Party manifesto to to build from. So it'll be really, really interesting yeah. to see what happens between now and next November.
1: So let's just do for a main may, maybe for our international listeners, let's just do a quick three bullet points of the main parties then if we can. Sure. So let's so say the so we've got the Conservatives at the top. Yeah. Got Labour, and uh, let's well, that's just for the argument. Say put Labour and Lib Dem on equal footing anyway, just yeah. in terms of this discussion. So, if you want to just run through those. So, Conservatives headline figures, policy on climate and energy.
0: Big on. So obviously the the Tories did. Um, what well, um did legislate for net zero by twenty fifty. They are they seem to be very much sticking towards that date. Mm-hmm. Um, their big energy policy though is to bring forward as much offshore wind as possible. Um, they will make some moves on um, electric vehicles they've announced um, now the Tories will tell you it's about 1 billion um, of funding towards electric vehicles Um, it's actually um, they announced an initial package of 400 million 200 million from the government 200 from private investment and then they've kind of hinted towards another package where 500 million which is sort of for EV charging manufacturing and and some other things Mm -hmm. but they haven't actually disclosed precisely how that breaks down so for, the, for them to turn around and say it's at least a billion is a bit disingenuous. Okay. Um, moving on to Labour. Yeah. Probably the most radical approach to energy um, right. policy that, that we've seen, uh-huh. um, certainly for decades in, in the UK, mm-hmm. um, centred around um, a huge amount of nationalisation. They right. want to bring f- um, not just... Mm-hmm. The country's energy um, network, so that's the transmission and the distribution grids, back under um, uh, government control okay. or pu- public ownership. Rather, okay. they okay. also want to take the Big Six into public ownership, which is enormous mm-hmm. news for a lot of private investors in the UK that, that own um, well, energy retail companies. And right? Right? yeah, yeah, exactly. That's um, yeah. Whilst also um, deploying a huge amount of solar, a huge amount of onshore wind. They did, however, duck away from bringing forward the net zero target to 2030. Okay. That was put forward at the, the Labour Party conference in right. September, but they have suggested it will be as close to 2030 as they would like it to, but they are not mandating for that. Right, okay. Um,
1: and, yeah, I mean, t- traditionally, Labour's uh, support base has been quite strongly aligned with the unions as well in, in the UK, I guess. Yeah. And, and in terms of the energy jobs debate, Kind of feel like they could have done more to, to win that. Definitely, but, but it seems as though the while the general public is a bit befuddled by the uh, renationalisation plans. From the rumours I hear, it seems that the unions themselves are not against it. Um, but yeah, okay. So finally, the Liberal Democrats, so maybe known to outside the UK as the Kingmakers in the two thousand and ten election. Yes, because they allowed a they formed a coalition with the then Conservative Party. Uh, that was in charge, um, and, well, that's, that's had all sorts of consequences that probably our listeners don't need to go into now. But, yeah, so what's Lib Dem's present status and so on on energy and all climate change? Um, they have very much...
0: sort of, Well, they've, they've tried to play in between the two, um, Labour and the Conservatives, yeah. which may be... Unsurprising Considering where They've kind of stood In the past mm, yeah. um, Net zero by 2045 They're saying Again It's more ambitious Than <laughs> the Tories so, so it's five years <laughs> Less of... oh, okay I, Again yeah This is exactly So did they
1: wait Till the other two were... <laughs> yeah. wait, uh, think, Actually well, sorry In the interest of balance, I can't say that Can I <laughs> Carry on sorry. Dear.
0: We'll kind of go Somewhere in the middle yeah. um, They are uh, Looking massively At offshore wind mm-hmm. um, As well as I mean that's uh, The the CFD policy has been massively successful Um, and it's probably unsurprising that the parties have gone hell for leather for this. That is unfortunately all we have time for in this episode
1: but thanks for listening and please do subscribe to the Soda Media cast wherever you're listening now.